Welcome to the State of Sport with me, Ben Karpinski, where I have numerous smart conversations with smart people from the world of sport. Anything ranging from the digital side of things to the on-field, sport is very exciting right now. And I think post-pandemic, we have some incredible opportunities to not only enjoy sport more, but also know a whole lot more about it. Welcome back to the State of Sport podcast here on Cliff Central. After a bit of a lengthy break, I've been aware, I've been traveling, I've been learning about the world of sport in Australia. We have the final episode of the series and the one that I've been most looking forward to. No disrespect to my other guests, but the guy in front of me today has played a major role in my life for the last few years, a very positive influence and very positive in the help of transforming me from a very average, skinny looking guy to someone of some strength and ability, I would say. Scotty McIntosh, good to have you in front of me. What's up, Ben? Good to be here. Now, when I say good to have you in front of me, is that the only time I ever see you is in the gym. So I'm being subjected to really like dodgy humor. You're not strong enough. You must do this. You must do that. And um, we never actually really get to discuss things at length. Like if I talk to you, it's about like a fight of the weekend and you give me some insights. I ask you about technique and about training and you give me some insights. And then you've got other people who demand your time in the gym. So I kind of feel like it's cool that I get an hour with you as much as I know you well. Like we haven't had a focused chat about what you do and what impact you have in fitness and sport. Yeah, I guess it's because of the nature of the environment we're in. It's always a bit surface level. But, uh, and I'm always trying to encourage you and uplift you. And you and do. Keep you going. No, I mean, <laughs> no, but it is, it's cool to sit down and have a proper chat. Absolutely not a word of a lie in that intro. Like you, you were the catalyst through a big change in my life. And that's something I really wanted to get out in the podcast because strength and conditioning isn't just something that's really great for your average person like me who just wants to be stronger, create greater longevity, more happiness in life. You have had a profound role in the sport of MMA, and we'll get to that in a second. Obviously, if people do follow me online, you know that I've done quite a bit of work with Drickers Duplessis. I've created some content with Cam Simon, and both of those guys are rising stars within the UFC right now. But where I do really want to start, because I've actually never asked you this, I just always know you as the guy that knows pretty much everything when it comes to strength and conditioning. But how did you get into this whole game? What was the kind of early goals and the kind of early steps that brought you to where you are now? Um, I don't want to ask you this in a while. Going, go, yeah, it's been a while. Going right back to the roots of it, I guess I was very passionate about sport from a young age. Um, begging my father for the latest soccer jersey at six years old, waiting for him to get home with it. You know, Manchester supporter since then. Um, Obviously, United, not City, because they weren't yeah, a thing back then. Yeah, they weren't. Um, so I was obsessed with sports as a young kid. Um, as I got a bit older, I got a bit heavier, and I was more built for rugby than soccer. And so I gravitated towards rugby later on in high school. And I would like to say I, I started thinking about how you had to train to perform better because I was an average athlete in a sense, and I would look at the best out there, you know. Um, so I know I I became aware of what you had to like there was more you could do to try to be better getting fitter getting stronger started training in the gym around 16 years old um at a then health and racket i guess just before You're really virgin. showing your age yeah, 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 yeah. health and racket club that was so that was pre-virgin I, I think it was yeah still health and racket then um and then got the, a lot of guys in south africa got that passed down bodybuilding split sort of routine 
maybe a bit of body for life got thrown in there. Um, and yeah, I was passionate to try and get a bit better for myself, not being the fastest player on the field or the biggest. So, so I knew there was something you could try do to improve, but yeah, always just during school, anything with a ball, any sport I was obsessed with. Um, then later on, I ended up in 2003 doing my personal training course with Rebook Education. So it is quite a while ago. And I, I had been playing rugby, started playing club, club rugby and started working with rugby teams, high school teams on the field. And doing my personal training course, I actually felt it wasn't enough to start training people. I didn't think it was comprehensive enough. I thought um, it was it didn't it covered the basics but the practical you had to go shadow someone and largely you it's up to what skill level they had and i felt like the practical component was very lacking um and it seems like it seemed like to me then that it was almost all the personal trainer courses back then so i decided i wanted to learn more and i i, I started um sorry just so, to interject there so what you what you had there was good enough to be a personal trainer but you just didn't think that was good enough as a personal trainer Personally, I didn't feel confident enough to start at a gym with that, um, especially to become a really good trainer. So, so that led me in to study at UJ um, and eventually finish an honors degree in sports science. I did during the course of my studies also work as a trainer at Virgin. So I, I had five years in Virgin, um, you know, uh, wetting my feet. At, I think a lot of people start in the big commercial gyms and we've got beautiful big commercial clubs here to get some initial time in the trenches. And during that process, Ben, um, I always knew I wanted to work with athletes and higher level athletes being obsessed with sports, but I knew I also needed to get time in the trenches and, and you know, you, you can't expect to just go work with athletes. I had been exposed to the field stuff with rugby and that, but I knew I had to learn. Um, so I did that through the sports science honors and then practically learning myself at Virgin but what I noticed over those years is that the stuff I was watching from overseas that I was finding online and that, um, and back then there were a few things coming out like Joe DeFranco's gym, which was the first sort of like, not not the first because you got guys like Louis Simmons, Westside Barbell, like the old school powerlifting gyms. But the, one of the first things that sort of popularized the warehouse thing same sort of time CrossFit sort of come, came about was Joe DeFranco's and he had this DVD called Strong and it showed him training NFL players in a warehouse style gym. And that like was largely unheard of in South Africa. And then you got the Jim Jones gym where they trained that cast for the 300 movie, which was, it, it, it got a bit of um, traction on the internet and people heard of the 300 workout and all of that. So I started seeing these, these environments overseas that are being created for training and you can express athleticism a lot more in them with the turf, the sleds, um, obviously a little bit of, uh, you know, exposure to powerlifting from some seeing like the strong guys at Westside and that kind of stuff online. And I realized I, after five years at Virgin, I cannot train people in this environment for, to really reach the goals I want to get them to. Um, and I completed my sports science honors degree and, during the last few years of that and being in version, I'm like, I need to open my own facility. I need to open something that replicates what I'm seeing there more and creates the environment to get the most out of people. And no frills, no fluff. 
fluff. So the gym I still run and own is the Yard Athletic, and it used to be kind of like our motto, no frills, no fluff, you know, blending science and attitude. And, you know, your training environment makes a big difference, but also I feel like if I go into a commercial gym now, a, a virgin active plan fitness, it feels like I'm in my kitchen. It's like it's it's not it doesn't get me in the headspace to want to strength train properly. Um, so I, I actually experienced that uh, a couple of months ago. So my background was always like commercial gym, like everyone else. You go do buys and back and chest and that kind of crap, but then you carry on the next day. And um, then obviously when I got to know you and training at the yard, the whole no frills, no fuss, you're there for like excellence basically. It really actually hit home with me because I went back to a gym recently and same thing. I didn't feel like I could actually do a proper workout there. Too many yeah. people, too many machines that all do kind of nothing and not enough space to actually express movement. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, we, I, I, we I, I don't want to poo-poo them too yeah, much because exactly, they still we, have a place in most people's lives. Exactly, and we have beautiful commercial gyms. Guys come from overseas and they say, wow, you, you know, they are beautiful gyms. And they have sort of evolved to have some sleds, some kettlebells, some air runners, and they've gotten better. But the general environment and um, atmosphere, you can obviously create something a bit different to that. Um, yeah. So going back to your question, Ben, um, I opened the yard athletic in 2012 to create that space. And I always had the intention to work with athletes. I thought I would work with professional rugby players because I largely played rugby until injuries and surgeries prevented me continuing with that. But I'd, I was always attracted to sports in terms of working as a professional where you need multiple variables. So you don't just need absolute strength, like powerlifting, you you mostly just need absolute strength. You need speed, agility, power, endurance, strength. So that attracted – I was very attracted to that because it's more complex to train someone for that. Um, along the journey, I ended up training a few professional CrossFitters. One of them, Celeste, was the first female to go to the CrossFit Games – um, and that was the turnaround to get her to that position was pretty short, and that was a challenge. Um, so, but it's very much understanding what sport needs and working back from that, right? A lot of the time, people just work out, and then whatever happens at the end happens. I always just get the impression what you've done is that you've always seen the end goal, and then you you've basically applied all the skills and experience you need to get the end goal on every single training session. Yeah, so it's it's putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah. Um, and that's what's exciting for me and, and also envisioning, you know, the future because it t can take a few years to create the complete athlete. Um, so CrossFit as a sport is very, very challenging to program for and get right because it's so many <laughs> variables and so many different skills and training, all of that throughout, you know, a training cycle and long term to develop so many things at once. So, so did that and worked with a few rugby players along the way, but Obviously, MMA is where I've ended up, and it also it's the same. It attracted me because of the the the, the different variables that you need, the the multiple demands of the sport. And I've always been, I think, when I was in Capia after school, um, and that's a very long time ago. I was buying the UFC DVDs mm -hmm. um, and watching Pride stuff and really old old school stuff. And and I've always been into the sport as a spectator. Um, always loved boxing a bit, boxed from when I was about 16 on and off. 
So it MMA pulled me in. I ended up actually getting into it, helping some guys for weight cuts initially. And and then just became their strength and conditioning coaches and upskilled myself, learned about that. Um, and that's become my niche. And my passion is working with combat sport athletes, now a few boxers as well for the last few years. Um, and I think that's largely where I will be specializing. Um, okay. So obviously having known you for like two years now, I've been training with you for just over one, as in like you've programmed me from – you know, you. I'm, I wasn't much of an athlete when I got there. I had back issues, and I wanted to become a better golfer. I found your programming was so comprehensive. I became so much stronger that now I didn't even think about golf. It's just something I do on the side. Now I want to be strong like an athlete. So when you talk about working with fighters or working at MMA fighters, something that I picked up is that I think that the fighters that you have are successful. First and foremost, you've got to be tough. This is the thing that gets your foot in the door in, in fighting. Second of all, you've got to be de- dedicated and you've got to spar and spar and spar and take the hits and carry on. That's like the base level in my mind to get you into a professional career. You know, obviously when we speak about your involvement in MMA, the, the likes of Drickers Duplessis and Cameron Simon come up because these are people that you've taken from. I mean, I would never say that they were ever base, but what you've done strength and conditioning wise has definitely become part of who they are as like a champion. And something that I just keep thinking about time and time again, the more I've become engrossed in the sport, because it is my favorite sport now, I always look at the conditioning. Now, if you were to watch the Cyril Garn versus Taiti Vasa fight, you'll probably look at that and go, one guy's fat, the other guy's really ripped and like, you know, doing well. But there's different nuances to what makes a good strength and conditioning person. What I love about what you've done with Team CIT, with Drickus and Cam, um, it's, they have confidence in the back of being so strong, strength and conditioning wise. Is this something that you feel has always been the intention? Give them a base that they can be confident enough to fight really well on? So I think very early on with Trickers, one of the initial conversations and points that I talked to him about is using your strength and conditioning, your fitness levels as another weapon. This is how you're going to approach your fights is knowing you can push the pace and you've still got knockout power in the last few rounds, but it's unacceptable to lose a weight, a fight on conditioning in the professional era of MMA, especially when it comes to the UFC. Now you should never, it shouldn't, should not be a factor. Um, there are enough good strength and conditioning coaches out there for guys to get their hands on. Obviously there is still a lot of rubbish that happens everywhere in the world, but you see it a lot in the local promotion, EFC, where guys literally gas out in a fight and lose that fight because of their conditioning. And it is unacceptable at this stage in in the where we're at with MMA and sports in general. But it's it can become a secret weapon where, you know, obviously your skill set, the different aspects of it, your wrestling, your your jits, your you know, your ground game, your 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 punching, your, your striking skills, your kickboxing, they all, you know, you, you guys are sort of ranked according to that. Not ranked, but they, you know, okay, this guy's a great kickboxer, this, that. But your your conditioning adds to all of that and how you can impose yourself on guys. And, you know, my favorite fighter of all times, Demetrius Johnson, and he finishes guys in the fifth round. And I've actually, his, his first strength and conditioning coach, He's now moved, obviously, to 1FC, was Joel Jameson. And I've, I actually went quite a few years back and did his course on conditioning overseas. And I followed him. And 
really adopted that mindset that this is another weapon for you in the cage. So when you say conditioning with regards to fighters, okay, now if you don't know MMA that well, um, weight divisions are a big deal. So you can't be too big and bulky. As much as you want to have power, you want to put someone away by being strong. You've always to be cognizant of the weight. When you were to say, look at Drickus starting out, what was the sort of plan that you had? What was the kind of conditioning that you wanted to set out for him? So just to give an example of the kind of things that he does train with with you. I'd say initially with Drickus, the biggest thing was it, his his approach to his overall week of training, the volume and what he was doing, and his strength and conditioning sessions were very haphazard. It was just kind of like hard circuits or whatever, add them in, and he was overtraining. So I had to cut back and find the sweet spot in terms of training and recovery. That was the initial goal. Um, and then take the time to slowly develop elite-level strength and conditioning, um, that extra weapon. We knew over the years, or I did in the back of my head, that you know, doing proper strength work, he will slowly add mass. He was a welterweight then, and it was a big cut to welterweight. So I knew at some point we'd need to take him up to middleweight. And a large factor when choosing weight categories is your your limb length and your height, your reach. Because, you, you, you know, some guys are big and muscular, but they just don't have the levers to fight taller guys with striking in that. So they just get picked off. But Drickus was did have the the uh, dimensions to be a good middleweight, um, so it's worked out well. So we spent the first couple of years still taking getting some welterweight belts. He won the K, uh, KSW belt, and then it came to a point where the weight cut was going to become. It did start becoming a bit too challenging, and yes, I've pulled off massive cuts with guys, but it, I'm not a fan of the biggest cuts because. You push it too far, and it will affect your conditioning and performance the next day in the cage. But there is a sweet point for everyone as well where they get used to training at a specific weight, and then they, it's easier to compete at that weight because that's their year-round training weight. And every fighter is going to be a little bit different, and they're going to, you're going to find their sweet spot of where they compete well. Okay, so we know a fighter spars all the time. The cardio goes and that kind of stuff. What are the main things that you program Drickus in like his fight camp? At this stage, it has evolved a bit more from when we first started. So first, he needed to get stronger. He didn't have proper strength levels, in my opinion. So we used, you know, the deadlift quite a bit and, and some traditional strength movements and got his strength to an acceptable level, in my opinion, um, because that is sort of, your, you know, the master quality strength. The, the, the bigger your base strength, the better everything comes together in terms of your, your um, aerobic, anaerobic, all of your performance, your power output. You need a good strength base. But once you've achieved that strength base, so we did that with Drickers, you, you don't have to spend as much time doing pure strength work. Um, and if you do, if you just carry on training him, say like more like a powerlifter, and you do see this with coaches who have a huge slant towards powerlifting, they've got this one hammer of powerlifting and they hit yeah. everyone's the same nail, you know? So you need different tools and you need to be well-rounded as a coach because otherwise you treat everyone as a nail. Um, so once he had adequate levels of strength, we started focusing a bit more on power, power endurance and, um, all through this process, improving his tank, so he's aerobic and alactic and anaerobic, all his conditioning, you know, his energy systems work. But 
it is nice now because we don't have to tax them so much with as big a strength sessions. And we, we're now focusing more on just fine tuning his, his output. So his it kind of gets to the point where, I mean, obviously if you don't know Drickers too well and how he's kind of crafted his craft over the years, it's like you build that strength up and then as long as you're maintaining it, you keep it kind of thing. And then every fight camp essentially this, as you say, is less demand building the strength. It's more about maintaining and working on mobility. Not just mobility, but every fight you're going to peak their energy systems for the fight so that they primed for that night. Um, but yeah, it gives you more time because when you do a, a heavy strength session, it's taxing, especially um, neurologically. So it's um, your nervous system is taxed. So it takes away from your other, whether you're sparring, whatever else. So in those initial years, you know, you are taking away your most important training as a fighter is your fight training, your skill training, your sparring. You know, as much as I'm very proud of the strength and conditioning work and that I'll never, you know, I know where everything falls into place. And you you need to be getting the most out of your MMA training. So you, it's a fine balance. And if you just go hammer your strength, you're not going to perform well when it's most important in your other upskilling events during the week. So, yeah, it, it, it's a good place to be in once you've reached a, a good level of strength and you're maintaining that. It's easier to maintain. Then you can spend more time on your tank, on your agility, on your movement control, your movement ability. Yeah. And it would go without saying that the greater your strength and conditioning, the less chance of injury. 100%. Would so, that be even more prevalent in a sport like fighting? Yeah, definitely in a full, any full contact sport, but fighting's obviously gnarly on another level like that. But um, it, the first job of a strength and conditioning coach is, you know, do no harm. And injury prevention. Yeah. So you are bulletproofing your body, and that's why I'll always maintain a decent level of strength work in their programming is because it bulletproofs them from injury. Um, as the fighters continue and push it hard over the years, they are going to get niggles. They are going to need more specific prehab rehab-type work and to deal with injuries. Um, but – the last thing you want to do, and you unfortunately in our game you see this quite a bit, is that the the programming from the strength and conditioning coach can aggravate injuries, can actually lead to more injuries because it's not wisely put together, and they're not um, considering the other factors of their training. Now, would would someone's particular fight style come into the reckoning here? Say you're very wrestling heavy or jiu-jitsu heavy rather than, say, someone who obviously is more strike-heavy. Is that something that would always come into the strength conditioning reckoning? To a degree, yes. But I do like to see the guys that you, you're trying to get their overall strength and conditioning, all their levels, all their abilities, up to an elite level, mm. no matter what their preference or style of fighting is. So Drickus, I mean, I wouldn't say at any stage is he a veteran, but he's approaching the latter part of his 20s. Cam is 21, the youngest male fighter in the UFC right now, which is quite something. It really is. I mean, you've been working with him for a few years now. He debuted at, what, 18, 90 in the EFC. How different is the sort of programming for him, someone who's more at the start of his professional career at the highest level? And, you know, what, what would be the sort of differences between working between those two fighters? It's probably less different than you realize because Cammy has been in our system for quite a few years. So it's not like his first years in the system. With Cameron now, what I'm having to start do is 
Um, Sorry, just for reference, Cameron is a much lighter fighting weight too. He's a bantamweight kind of fighter. Drickus is middleweight. There's a big difference between the two. Yeah, so that's that's what I was about to say is that also because of Cammy's age, if you're 21 years old and you're doing strength training, you're going to fill out. You're still young. This You're still going to add meat on your bones. So with Cammy, we want to keep him at bantamweight. So that is probably one of the biggest considerations at the moment is I can't allow him to gain muscle. So obviously you're managing his nutrition with that, but I have to manage the load, especially the strength work that he does. So that's where it's it's very specific to him. And then with each guy you're working with, it is also largely dependent on when they fight. And the it, when when we go into a fight camp or eight weeks prep for a fight, then they on their own peaking process and program. And there's nuances in that with each of them where I see they may have a deficiency somewhere and they work a bit more on that. So to ask a very sort of basic question here, and this is something that, you know, again, we have touched on in the past. It's like, how do you become strong without becoming bigger? So you, it's the volume throughout the week that you do and the month, obviously. Um, It's very hard to add, add muscle weight and and weight then if you're in a, like calorie maintenance okay you have to be in a surplus to add muscle it's basic thermo energetics yeah <laughs> and um also the what we normally do is if if you work in a rep range and a load that let's say from higher than five reps to 15 reps or even higher often and, a, and at a load there then it's, it's typically sort of known as hypertrophy muscle gaining training so we, we work to maintain strength and build strength. We do very low repetition, so anywhere from one to five, that sort of range, and heavy. Because then you're mostly getting the neurological benefits of strength gain, okay? Um, not the muscular building benefits of hypertrophy, which both come together to give you, give you strength. But, you know, strength is largely neural. It's, it's your brain telling your motor units to fire to recruit them. And um, drive that movement, that muscle firing. So you can get away with getting really strong without adding muscle by using lower rep ranges. Which in my mind is now that I've tried various things throughout my career of being a casual gym goer to someone who knows a bit more now. Like that to me is the sweet spot because being bulky might look great if that's what you're into. But the ability to be strong, as you say, this whole neural thing, it adds so much to confidence too. And when you think fighters, if there's ever a sport that need confidence, it's definitely those guys. So this all makes a whole bunch of sense to me. Yeah, and you—I mean, if in a weight class sport, you want to at your weight, you want to be the strongest at your weight. And if that guy now has is, for lack of a better word, a puffy middleweight, because he's been he's added muscle that's it's non-functional, if you want to put it that way. It's it's more um, he's holding more fluid. There's more. Uh, hypertrophy intracellularly so between the muscle cells then the actual thickness of the just the muscle cell it's it's wasted size and weight whereas if it's just pure strength work you've been doing and the and thickening your muscle fibers it's all there for a gain and a purpose so and also you you do carrying more muscle mass can gas you out so what would happen then is with a say a puffy middleweight he may be Actually, shorter, a smaller reach, but he's the same sort of weight category because he's gained too much muscle mass, and it's not, and he's just, and the strength levels, you know, the the 
the taller, lank, more, you know, longer reach guy could actually be stronger because of the style of training. So it's very important to manage how you add muscle mass as a fighter. I just feel like in the UFC, that middleweight division is a great example of this. Like Israel Adesanya had been the best for quite some time. He's a skinny, lanky guy. Yo Romero's come along. Paulo Costa's come along. These are all big, puffy guys who you think are quite mean and dominant, but they just don't have that overall. Again, like I suppose different conversation as far as fighter abilities. One of the biggest things about MMA and fighting in general is the whole thing about weight cuts. And I still can't really quite understand this. I'm glad I never have to cut so much weight in anything I do because it doesn't look healthy. It doesn't look like a lot of fun. How do you approach weight cuts and how early do you think about it within, say, an eight-week camp? So, yeah, weight cuts, obviously quite a big topic in the MMA world after Kamzat missed weight this weekend. Just, and, yeah, but like eight pounds. That's not missing yeah. weight, I so, guess. <laughs> so it was topical this weekend, just sure. passed. Um, it's when do we consider it? All year round. You're staying within parameters, you know, to... They, when I first started working with MMA fighters, you get two types of fighters. You get fighters who are camp-to-camp fighters. Um, who are less professional, they may have other full-time jobs and that, and they get out of shape between camps. And then when the eight-week camp starts, then it's, oh, I need to diet down. I need to get to a respectable weight that I can still do my weight cut. And now, obviously, there's a big separation with the professionalism of the sport and guys training year-round and um looking after their bodies and not getting out of shape. It's also with Drickers, for example, early on, I said to him, you can't every eight week camp start this diet to prepare to get down to, let's say now, for example, he needs to get down to about 93 and a half um, to 95, let's say, walk around weight, and then we'll water manipulate and and, uh, do a water cut from there to get to 84 on the scale. Just rough example. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't diet the whole eight weeks to get there because eight we- your eight-week training camp is when there's the most, most volume, the most demand on your system, and you need to recover the best. Your calorie intake and you, your your carbohydrate intake, protein intake, all, all your macros actually, will help you recover. It's key to recovery is your nutrition. And if you're on a diet in an eight-week camp, you're severely hampering your recovery. Yeah, makes sense. So now what guys do is because they get out of shape, every fight camp when they need energy the most to recover and perform at their best and upskill and peak, they are on these diets and these big calorie deficits just to get to a position that they can actually do the weight cut and drop from. And you you don't see progress with athletes like that in terms of um physical and physiological pro- progress because every camp is a survival <laughs> and it's just like they have to beat the scale first and you don't see the strength gains and fitness gains and they don't peak that well. Whereas a guy like well, all, all the fighters now who I'm working with just about, if they come, they starting their eight weeks, not that far out from where I want them 10 days out when we start the water manipulation process. So they're able to eat. I think when I started with Drickus, he was probably, <laughs> it's scary. He was probably taking in like 1,800 calories, you know, for when he was trying to get in shape and all of that. And now he's eating 3,500 around there, year round and not getting out of shape because we've got him, his body used to that amount of calories. And it, it's he's got energy, he's thriving. And 
then you only, you know, when your body's on that amount of fuel and used to it, you just take a little bit away to get a little with the extra sessions you're doing in a in a uh, fight peak cycle, and you're there. It's it's not hard work. So, yeah, it's we it's a year round process of knowing staying within a certain weight limit, um, and then just getting to the exact weight limit through a little bit of uh, dieting and diet manipulation through that eight weeks. So say someone like Paddy Pimlet, who's becoming a star in the UFC, a lot of his content is centered around the fact that he trains, he fights, he wins, he binges for like days and days, and he gets really, really fat. I mean, it's cool when you're young and you're winning, and that's like a fun thing that you do. But that doesn't seem like a good long-term play, does it? Having such yo-yos in your diet, because you need consistency ultimately. It's ridiculous. He'll shorten his career because it's not healthy to lose fat rapidly like that. And yeah, we'll see now because he's got more serious stuff coming. Obviously, he's young. His hormones are on his side right now um, and he's pulling it off. But I think he'll that that will fade out, that sort of approach of his. It is kind of like also a media type thing. He's getting a lot yeah. of attention for it. But just let him have one bad cut where he barely makes it. Or one bad performance where he gasses out because he had to do too big a cut. Um, yeah, or multiple camps where you're having to severely restrict calories and he's not going to gain in get the performance gains he needs to be getting. Yeah, so you speak about the water manipulation. Again, Like this is something that I would love to get done more of a granular level with you. Someone needs to drop five kilograms three days from the fight or whatever that may be, as you say, like the, the weight divisions mean different sort of margins. So say you got, you're in fight week, you get to the UFC, you've got five, six Ks to cut. What does the water manipulation mean? Because obviously we see people being in saunas. We see them doing huge amounts of cardio and sweatsuits. What's the real sort of breakdown here as far as doing it properly? So this is not health advice. <laughs> no, obviously this is not health advice. This is for extreme people who watch weight cuts. Don't yeah. do this because you want to look good in the bikini. Yeah. So or or a speedo. Basically, your body's you know made up of a lot of water. There's a lot of water in your system, and you're able to get rid and manipulate a lot of that water out of your body, and do you can show up very much lighter on the scale. And then when you replenish that water, you're going to be back to your normal walk, walk around weight. Yeah, so we'll get, we'll get to replenishment in a second because I know that in itself is its own science. So you're, there's a few things that affect the amount of water that's held in your body. Your carbohydrate levels, so your carbohydrates get stored as glycogen in your muscle cells, and that also brings um, water in with it, just over four grams of water per gram of carbohydrate. And then the major factor is your electrolyte balance. So your sodium levels in particular, because sodium, the more salt in your system or sodium in your system, the more water that you retain. And that works your, your, with your kidney and a hormone called aldosterone. And it, it, um, regulates how much water you retain and not depending on your electrolyte levels, particularly sodium. So by, Taking out the sodium in your system, you basically will start letting go of water or flushing water out. And you do that through right. sweating, through breathing it out. Um, so in a basic term, if you if you get rid of all the sodium in your system, you'll drop a lot of water. There's also fiber 
in your gut and fiber affects how much weight you're holding. So you can go into a lower fiber diet the week of a fight and drop weight that way. Um, and then, like I said, the carbohydrate levels and obviously simply the amount of water you've taken in. Because if you haven't taken water in, there's no water for your system to hold in. So we use all those factors and we, man- we, we, we play a bit of a game with your body and manipulate those factors from uh, – I've had various approaches over the, the years at, uh, in terms of timing. Um, but in a nutshell, um, let's say 10 days, maybe a week out. It depends on each athlete and how much they have to drop. You're going to take in extra water and extra salt. And what that does is you manipulate that hormone, aldosterone, and then your body starts holding on to water because um, of the salt. But it also – you start to pee a lot more because you, um, you're trying to flush all that water you're putting in. So we'll, we'll take in a lot more water, let's say six to eight liters, okay? And that process carries – Obviously per day. Yeah. That process carries on for a few days and then – at the end of that process, you you suddenly cut your water intake, but you're still in flushing mode. So that aldosterone hormone is still telling your body to get rid of all the water because it's been taking in excess amount of water. So it thinks it's almost like siphoning once you get the process going. Yeah, it's, it's like I need to carry on getting rid of water. And then when you st- suddenly take away the water, that hormone's still elevated and it's still telling your body to flush it out. So that then sheds a lot of water. Plus, you're not taking the water in, and a few days before that, you cut your sodium completely. So, no sodium, body doesn't want to hold water anymore. So, you drop quite a bit of water just doing that, manipulating your water intake and your sodium intake. Then, also taking out your fiber near towards the end, drop some weight, and then you start squeezing the lemon. (laughs) You start doing – we don't really use saunas. We use full immersion baths, hot baths. Um they work better. They're safer as well. And then um, we will bath, get the guys sweating properly, get them under blankets um, in sauna suits. And they already have flushed quite a bit of water through the manipulation of the, the water, sodium, fiber, carbohydrates as well. Um, and then we will squeeze the rest of the water out with, with by sweating it out. Um, the thing with weight cutting is that the old school approach, and I still come across, I'm helping some boxers right now with their first cut where they've heard, oh, there's a better way to do it, and, and they've come around the corner. But synonymously with boxers, um, they're quite old school and wrestlers, and you still obviously get MMA fighters who do this. They do ridiculous cutting processes. So they will start training in a sweatsuit, like starving themselves, um, even cutting sodium very early on, like two weeks out, some of them even. And what that means is for the, the two weeks, the most important two weeks before your fight, you are in a dehydrated state. So how are you going to perform? If you're dehydrated just on the day of your fight, that's bad enough. But if you've had a lead up of two weeks of dehydration. God, that's going to make you miserable as well. No, but it's, it's going to severely, severely, you're probably impacting your sleep. Yeah. Because you're a bit dehydrated and we know how important sleep is now. It's hot as topic. you mentioned, the recovery is the most important about this. Yeah. So, so now you, it's ridiculous. What, how, like, how are you going to step into that cage or ring and try and perform having been dehydrated for two weeks? And plus, they don't rehydrate the after weigh-in properly. So what we do is 
we try and minimize the window of dehydration um, to a smaller possible time as part as possible. So we we will do the final baths of the cut the morning of the weigh-in. Mm-hmm. So even sometimes the guys are getting our poppers forward to do that because then you've stayed as hydrated as you can. Once you cut your sodium the week leading up to the, the weigh-in, you do start being a little bit dehydrated. But you're still keeping – it's not excessive. Only once you start doing the baths, it, it becomes proper. You're properly dehydrated, but it's for a few hours. And then you hit your weigh-in, and straight after your weigh-in, it's a very specific amount of electrolytes that you're replenishing according to their body weight and their cut um, and a process to do that. And they feel great within a few hours of weigh-in. So the window of, of dehydration is literally like that morning of the of the cut. Yeah, if they've got a bigger cut from the night before, they, they may need to do one bath the night before. But it's far different than these guys who are starting to do sauna suit runs two weeks out. So something I, I found interesting when I first watched Drickers fight, it was a EFC middleweight title fight. And obviously you, him and his um, opponent were both 85 on the scale. They were not both 85 again in the ring the next day. What is the sort of go-to way of replenishing? Um, and what are the sort of foods that are good or bad? Because throw away people think like, okay, well, I've done all this cut. Now I need to just eat because I need to get the calories back. And it's obviously not the case because you get good calories and bad calories and good food and bad food for this. Yeah, it's it's always funny still at the EFC weigh-ins. You, you watch guys do this cut and they look absolutely terrible. Like their, their eyeballs are sunken and they yeah. look like Skeletor and yeah. And then you see they 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 finish weighing and they're drinking a Coca Cola and then eating a pizza or something and you're like, dude, please! Like <laughs> we used to see it at Carnival City, like they in the first takeout from outside there, and like someone please help this guy. But the 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 one major factor you need to consider is their gut is normally a little bit more sensitive. Well, you're taking away the fiber. Yeah, well, it, it's because also the morning of you may, you probably haven't had any food. You've had less food the day before and you, yeah. it, you've been dehydrated. So your gut is a little bit more sensitive. So you've got to time things nicely and liquids are far more easier to absorb. So we first get in quite a bit of fluid, um, with the electrolytes in it, some sugars, carbohydrates in it and a bit of BCAs. So it, it's quite a, a more comprehensive mix than that few things to drive the liquid into your muscle cells as well and then it's 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 stretching out that process the the first thing we eat is fruit for the fructose and uh the glycogen replenishment in your muscles liver uh fructose goes straight into replenishing it's the quickest way to replenish your liver glycogen and then we wait a while out and then it's it's stuff that's easy easier to digest um that they're used to eating as well you know, guys, often when you help them for the first time, they you can't make guys suddenly start new stuff. It's like you don't want to try new goos on your comrades' race day when you've never used them before. Mm. Um, myself included, many people have made that mistake. I haven't run the comrades, but I've done some endurance things. and It's not an elegant mistake. You, I've you, been in that you, run. Yeah, you, you never... Yeah, you never try something new on competition day yeah. or even competition week. You eat what your body's used to, what you're used to having, and how, stuff you know how it's going to affect you. But easier to digest stuff, um, you know, not incredibly high-fiber stuff at first because um, you want quite rapid replenishment um, in the, the first 
half of the day after weigh-in. And yeah, then with the fluids and that, you can rehydrate the guys quite quickly. I I like to see what they step because nowadays with, with MMA, you do a medical weigh-in and that's when you have to officially make the weight. And then a couple hours later, you do the TV, you know, the media TV weigh-in. And it's surprising how heavy guys can get just in that sort of period of time. Because if you imagine if they've taken in four and a half liters of fluid, they're already four and a half kgs heavier. Yeah. Um, one consideration is after your weigh-in, your hormones are still a little bit geared towards flushing because of that 10-day process or however long your process has been to get your hormones geared to flush water. So you almost have to overhydrate that next day you need to still so so guys may take in let's say four or five liters of fluid that day and then stop because they feel oh i've drunk enough i feel okay but you need to continue to hydrate even the next day on fight day and uh, carry on putting in electrolytes you've taken a lot out because it's been a uh, um a long period of time it hasn't just been a one day of dehydration it's been gearing up to that point you know so everything you've kind of gone through there is like the extremes. And this is why I think that you're a fantastic strength conditioning coach for the average person because what you've just described is it's pretty hardcore. You've got to understand the parameters there. You've just taken these people through this. What do you think are the most important reasons why sort of average people should be focusing on strength conditioning as well? Because we know that it's a way of getting excellence in a professional realm. But I firmly believe, so much so that I'm a massive advocate of this now, I mean, this is why we're talking is that if you can take some of these components, some of these sort of fundamentals into everyday life, you'll only function as a better person. But how do you convince the sort of people who maybe feel it's not that important or the fact that they just run a 5K twice a week is good for them? What are the sort of most important things that you try and part on people to understand that strength and conditioning should be a part of everyone's life? Uh, strength, in Strong First, we say it's the master quality. And Strength on your, your, your physiology has the best effect. So if anything in life could be the natural elixir to long life and health, I would put strength up there, strength training as the first thing. It has the best effect on your endocrine, your hormonal system. And that is huge for us. It's, um, it's huge for guys and girls, right? Because yeah. often people hear the word hormones. They don't think it applies so much to the yeah. masculine. So I'd say your your hormone health, um, obviously that's not taboo anymore, guys. You know, even if you're on Instagram now, maybe because I've my feed is largely fitness stuff, but you're seeing these pop-up things for like tea replacement and… Tea being like, testosterone. Yeah, like these anti-aging clinics, which was largely a big thing overseas. Now you're seeing it in South Africa. It's not taboo anymore, that hormonal health and, and keeping that in check. And the effects that has on aging, um, energy levels, overall health and well-being, um, disease prevention, all sorts. So your hormonal health is big. Your, it's an antidote to our, our modern way of living, our, our sitting, our posture, our lack of movement. Convenience foods, yeah. synthetic foods. Yeah. But, but in terms of skeletal health and posture and, and having a rigid anti-fragile system, strength training is the, a great bang for the buck because what you can do in 45 minutes, you know, you, there's no nothing else you can do physically that will give you the same quick effect to to work against all the negative things we have going against us now. Um, 
psychologically, when you start getting stronger, you can only, once you experience this, know the confidence it gives you. And um, it's yeah, you, you just start seeing that progress of being able to lift more. It's, it's a confidence boost. It's, yeah, it's multi, multifaceted, but it is the best long life elixir that there is. You know, the fountain of youth. If, if we want to say what is the closest thing to that, it, it is strength training, I would say, yeah. in life. Um, that being said, I mean, I'd, I would say in the early part of my career, I maybe slanted a little bit too much towards strength. Um, maybe gotten a little bit of an echo chamber there, but your cardiovascular health is super important as well. It's, it's, it for many of the same reasons, but having adequate and basic levels of cardiovascular, respiratory health and levels is, it goes a long way to your recovery from your strength training. And obviously we know your cardiovascular health, your heart health is important. Your heart is a muscle in itself. And to train that muscle is not the same as training your your biceps and your quads and and your other muscles. It it requires pumping big big amounts of blood across your body, and to do that, you need to get your heart rate up for a sustained period of time, and that's your your more aerobic, old school style training. So it is important to treat your heart as a muscle and and train it to get stronger as well. Um, so. We, you know, my approach is to have a holistic approach and a balance of those two, but getting someone strong when they, when they haven't done any strength work is a, it's, it's the best starting point and a good way to go. Yeah, it's quite a timely procedure, but it's so worthwhile. As you say, it's the best bang for buck as far as like improving your life. You mentioned there strong first. Now, a lot of people might not know what strong first is. Why is this something that you subscribe to and care so deeply about as a way of training? You know, obviously people look at strength training as like, Powerlifting is a genre, CrossFit is a genre, cardio, because you want to be a cyclist or a runner, that's also a thing. Tell us a bit more about Strong First as we wrap up here. So Strong First is, um, there's a, a guy named Pavel Tazzolini. He's a He introduced kettlebells to the West. He brought them to a great, great podcast person if you want to get some additional podcasts listening after this. Yeah, so he's been on the Tim Ferriss show. He's been on Joe Rogan's show. Um, he popularized kettlebells in the West in about 1998. Um, he's a master of sport from Soviet Union era days, uh, Russia from there. And just a, he's contributed a lot to the strength and conditioning world. And he's very good at dumbing down very complex subject matter um, into layman sort of explanations. He started kettlebell certification, which quickly became the gold standard of um exercise certifications in the u.s called the russian kettlebell challenge so formerly strong first was known as the rkc and then things changed quite a few years back and the new organization that he he is owns and runs is called strong first um pavel is largely in the background doing research writing books the last few years actually focused more on energy systems training strength endurance power endurance that kind of stuff but he's got lots of publications out there. But within the, the organization of Strong First, there are a lot of master trainers and a lot of good contribution. But the whole thing about Strong First is finding the most efficient and safe way to get strong for the every every person out there. Um, 
So it's not just kettlebells. The kettlebell certification, it's always been known for that, but they do a barbell certification and a body weight certification. Um, but it's very principle based. Although we have these different tools we used, it's, it's very, it, it, it's smart principles to approach your training and why. It's really going to the philosophy of training and why to approach things the way we do. So it's not just taking a snapshot and a close view at things. It's be taking a further out view and being objective and, and then creating a philosophy from there. And I really bought into that philosophy. Um, you know, talking about the, the state of sport or the state of strength and conditioning. I, my personal experience in South Africa was that the practical side of strength and conditioning in South Africa was terrible. When it came to actually, where could I go and find out how to train people practically and teach them how to do things properly? There are probably little pockets of people, but eventually I met Sean Kearns, who's a, the a master trainer for Strong First in South Africa. Back then was obviously RKC. And that's the first time I got expo exposed to like a really high level of practical education and someone who knew what they're doing. And Sean had come through the whole Strong First system. And so I bought into it very quickly because I hadn't been exposed to good practical, even in my honors year and that I was very disappointed. Um, so very high quality training, but of the basics, focusing on the basics, doing them perfectly and not doing more than that because it's unnecessary, getting rid of the clutter and the stuff that's not necessary at all to train and really be owning the basics and progressing them properly with smart programming. And I studied overseas. I did their level one, their level two overseas. I've done the body, et cetera, et cetera, and eventually became a team leader for Strong First and help with the education here. But it's just a very cool system for people who want for lack of better words, the truth of strength and conditioning and fitness. Okay. It, 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 it breaks it down to the truth. Like if you're really seeking yeah. what really works, what you don't need to do, getting rid of the fluff, because the big problem nowadays, Ben, is that with social media, there's just much more rubbish out there than stuff that works. People, Any, people know, standing on Bozu balls, there are bands <laughs> all over the place. Not even that. It's like you see the, the trends come and go. It's like the booty bands, like with these fitness influencers. It's like from a few years back now, everyone had to have a band on every single movement they did. And there's no barrier to putting out content and putting your hand up and saying, I'm an expert. If you're sponsored by a supplement company or whatever, or you're in great shape, you've got good abs, you don't have to be a great trainer or not to get, help other people achieve real results, real strength levels, real fitness levels to get a following and influence that following. And it's scary what's getting put out there. So... Yeah, strong first is a cool antidote to that. Um, there are there are a lot of other good sources of education out there. Strong first is just one of them, but well, their philosophy I, I, is very pure. I just kind of see it like almost like a body MBA. You know, mm. it's just it, it prepares you for so much through good fundamentals, as you say, and you yes. put time and consistency onto that, you become so much more bulletproof. Like everything you mentioned there with Cameron and Drickers, looking at their careers as a body of work. They're building themselves up to take on any challenge because mm -hmm. that's how things work in pro sport. Everything gets ratcheted up the better you get. So you, the margin for failure, like everything becomes so much more definite. The stakes are higher. So I think building your body up in the way that you guys have done that is just such an incredible part of that. So Drickers will be probably fighting again in the UFC in December, early December. Tenth. If you're not into MMA yet, and I know some people will still look at it as being brutal, barbaric, and all that kind of stuff. It is so fascinating because you understand what's possible with a human body. 
the, how you execute certain skill sets. And obviously it is a very, very difficult sport because someone is trying to knock your head off. You try and do the same. So much needs to be done to go into the cage, get that opportunity. And it's just so cool to know that people like you obviously don't get a huge amount of attention around this because as you say, fighting does come back to fighting. That's the biggest mm. thing. But if you don't have the strength and conditioning, you're never going to make the top flight there. So getting a better understanding, that's really cool. Cameron has just made it into the UFC, so he'll be fighting. Um, Hopefully the week after Drickus, we can get him on a fight night. Okay, so he'll be fighting as early as this year still because he went to Dana White's Contender Series. What a performance that was. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're at all interested within South African sport or just sporting excellence, follow these guys. You know, They really are on the up and up. And they've got teammates or people in their camp like Scotty who's obviously been instrumental in creating them and craft them to be the absolute best. Um, look, I, I, I've, I say it all the time. I say to people, I say to you, I'm so appreciative of what you've helped me become because you've taught me fundamentals. And I've thankfully at this stage of my life have had the patience and the discipline and be receptive enough to take this in. So I live this every single day. All the things that you talk about, I completely believe or I question and you kind of give me good answers from time to time or you tell me just to get off Instagram stop trying to take my shirt off for likes but it's just it, it's so cool to understand where strength and conditioning fits and I often look at other sports and I think understanding that person's movements understanding their demands they probably could be better conditioned and I'm not going to point fingers at sports like cricket but I do believe that if there were more people like you within certain sports people taking that bigger broader sort of view I think it can only be a better thing. And um, I kind of just want to leave it on that. I think as sport becomes far more competitive, careers become harder to make money in, all these kind of things, strength and conditioning is just absolutely vital. We see it in golf. We see it in a variety of other sports that used to be a lot more sedentary. And it's just it's just great to know that insights like yours and expertise like yours are making a difference out there. Awesome. It's been really great having you in the studio, Scotty. I'm looking forward to being in the gym in four hours' time, maybe five. Today looks like a long one. <laughs> and uh, working on the kettlebells. It's not glamorous, but it definitely gets the results. And, um, yeah, it's kind of the highlight. Being away for the last three weeks has been like, so hard in my head. Not training is just brutal for me. Yeah, when it becomes just part of your daily habits and your existence, it, it, when you take it out, it does... Well, it's it feels keep, like there's a hole. <laughs> it's what's keeping me relatively young still. It's yeah. my it's my daily elixir. Yeah. If you want to find more of Scotty, um, the Yard Athletic Online, that is obviously for the institution that he runs and crafts people within. And then personally, do you do much social media? I should do more, but I am on Instagram mostly, Coach Scotty Mac. Okay. So, um, so head him up. If you've got questions, you want to know what your first start point is towards strength and conditioning, or if you're a professional athlete and you know you should be doing more, Scotty's a great source of entertainment, a great source of knowledge, and he's a decent guy. Scotty, thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate your time in a very different setting. Yeah. Neither of us are sweating. Yeah, it's, it's been good, Ben. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the chat. That is season one of the State of Sports. Wrapping it up from here, I'll keep you posted as far as where we're going to take the interviews because there are so many more people I want to chat to in sport. And sport, of course, is an ever-evolving state. <laughs>